Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Um, we have a really special episode for you today, a great conversation with a pro-life philosopher. This is my friend Clinton Wilcox. He's a staff apologist and resident philosopher, we call him, at Life Training Institute and specializes in bioethical issues. Clinton has been speaking, writing, and debating on abortion since 2012 and also hosts a pro-life podcast called Pro-Life Thinking. And so this is an episode where we just wanted to dive really deep into some of the more uh, quote-unquote sophisticated or academic pro-abortion bigotry, <laughs> philosophical arguments from allegedly very wise people, or maybe smart but not wise, who work very hard to twist themselves into philosophical pretzels um, in order to defend the fictional right to abortion. And Clinton has been somewhat of a philosophical mentor to me, is a brilliant mind, writes, blogs, debates, speaks on these issues in a much more refined way um, than most people are used to, but we need to dive into all of these ideas to make the self-evident claim that there is no right to kill an innocent human being. And so we're going to dive into arguments you may not have heard before at the more academic and philosophical level, so you'll be prepared for them to equip yourself to defend life, to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. Buckle up, and we'll be right back with this interview. <laughs> Clinton, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, looking forward to it. Um, we were talking about uh, launching out into the podcast space uh, together quite a while ago. Um, and now yeah. you're helping host uh, Pro-Life Thinking. And uh, we're coming up on two years since I launched um, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. And so we're really excited to have you on to dive into these ideas. Firstly, just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Just give us a short background on how you got involved in pro-life work. Sure. Uh, it's a little bit of a long story. I'll try to condense it a bit. Uh, after I got out of high school, I attended college and took a public speaking class. And one of the subjects I had to give a speech on was the topic of abortion. Uh, it had to be a controversial topic. And that was the topic I just sort of chose out of thin air. And as I started doing research for that presentation, I started to see what the evidence and arguments were on both sides and started to realize that uh, the pro-life position actually has pretty much has the lock on uh on on evidence and and you know good arguments for it uh there you know there are some good arguments for abortion you know good in the sense that it addresses the issue and advances the conversation not right. good in the sense that it's it, it, you know that they succeed but uh but I, from from my view as i was doing the uh the research into this presentation really appeared to me that the, that the weight of the evidence was on the pro-life side. In fact, it really wasn't even close. So I, um, you know, I'd always kind of been pro-life. Uh, you know, I was raised Christian, so it was something that I just would have been uh, because of my Christianity. Uh, but right. but doing the, uh, you know, research for that presentation, that's what really spurred me on to want to become a more outspoken uh, advocate of the pro-life position. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, uh, and, and Clinton, you are a go-to for, for many people on arguments that they've been stumped on and weren't sure how to navigate. Maybe they got them from some uh, loony leftist professor at UC Berkeley um, or maybe from their uh, pro-choice uncle Bob uh, who likes to research mm -hmm. abortion arguments to try to stump pro-lifers. Um, and, and you're very trained in, in sort of the natural law. 
um, and uh, in the substance view of persons and in being able to navigate those arguments. So I want to dive into some of those because on this show, obviously, I break down what's going on in the country, the legislation, the ideas behind it, why it matters, equipping people to engage for life and exposing people, um, our listeners, to people in the country and in the world doing phenomenal pro-life work in different ways to advance life. Um, but we haven't dive, uh, dove in on this show yet into some of the more academic arguments for abortion that you're not going to probably find in like an ACLU or Planned Parenthood tweet, right? You're probably not going to get right. from your 18-year-old niece. Um, and you'll probably only find them on university campuses um, and in some of the textbooks written by these pro-abortion professors or philosophers to advance their arguments. So let's just start diving into those with the time we have with you. And I think this will be really um, helpful and thrilling for, for our listeners um, to make them into pro-life philosophers as well. Mm -hmm. um, the first one I want to I throw your direction, Clinton, is this argument we hear from, they call it speciesism. Uh, and mm -hmm. this is uh, a word that some, many woke leftist professors like, where they actually critique you, Clinton, and me, by saying, what, what makes you think you're so special, Clinton? So the idea is that there's no, um, there's no morally relevant differences between the species. And so they'll accuse you, Clinton, of speciesism if you accept what we would say is a self-evident premise that human beings are intrinsically valuable, more valuable than any other form of life. And they'll say, well, what, makes, what makes you think you're so important? And so they'll say that differences in species is not morally relevant. So unborn human beings are no more valuable than other species. Um, wh what do we do with that? And what are some of the, I guess, underlying premises that someone like that would have embraced to make that argument? Yeah, well, uh, the term speciesism, I think, was probably coined by Peter Singer. Uh, I don't know if it's a term he got from somewhere, but right. uh, the first I ever encountered it was in reading one of Singer's books, uh, um, you know, a book he wrote on on uh, on practical ethics. And so the the idea here is that uh, is that trying to argue that we are that we are intrinsically valuable because of the species we belong to, which is, you know, human or homo sapiens, if you want to go the more scientific uh, nomenclature route. But uh, claiming that someone is valuable just based on the species that they belong to is as wrong as arguing that someone is valuable based on their gender or based on their race. So speciesism is just as wrong as racism and, uh, and sexism are. And that's what Peter Singer would say, because there's nothing intrinsic uh, intrinsic to human beings that make us valuable over and above other species. And so someone like Singer would say that, you know, there are other species which which have higher intellectual capacities, like dolphins, uh, chimpanzees, and uh, elephants, maybe fetus. a few others, uh, than, than a human fetus. So right. we ought to be protecting and considering these other types of animals to be persons, but not the, the fetus or the embryo, because the fetus and the embryo do not have uh, th this capacity for higher rational thought. So that, that's, that's the gist behind speciesism. And as certain pro-life philosophers, like uh, I think Frank Beckwith and Christopher Kayser have probably both pointed this out, you can't just throw the, the suffix ism onto something and make it as morally repugnant as sexism and racism. <laughs> that's just not how the English language works. Uh, so 
so their their uh, their assumption that we can't claim that we're valuable based on species membership uh, is just um, it's just you know a really bad bad way to argue because the reason that sexism and racism are wrong is because it focuses on a surface difference and it ignores the underlying thing that we all have in common, which is our common humanity. Brilliant. So yes, <laughs> yeah, so so that's why sexism and racism are wrong uh, right. because we all belong to the human species. Uh, so interesting. Just, just so right there. So Peter Singer is sort of denying the underlying truth that causes him to say that sexism and racism is wrong, namely that they're human beings. And so you right. shouldn't discriminate against them like you might discriminate on your favorite flavor of beef or your favorite cow. That's not wrong because the cow's not a human being. So I, so that is strange. That's a, that's a brilliant point to make for our listeners, you guys, is, is, is Clinton's pointing out that, that the very thing that would lead Peter Singer, by the way, who's a pro-abortion philosopher who defends abortion through point of birth and infanticide, the reason he would call sexism and racism wrong is because they're human beings with intrinsic dignity. The very truth that he now denies when he says that speciesism is wrong. <laughs> so. Right. So we, we can't. So so uh, sexism and racism are wrong because it ignores the common humanity that we all have in, in common. So the thing that that we're ignoring, the thing that we have in common, is the very thing that he's denying has value in the first place. So if we're not valuable uh, based on our humanity, then you know, it becomes inexplicable then why racism and sexism are wrong because right. now it's not because now you're you're not ignoring what we all have in common, uh, which is our common humanity. But now you're you're placing human value in something uh, something different, something that that is functionalism based and which right. comes in degrees. And so, if you want to treat right. all human beings equally, then you have to ground our value in something that we have equally. If you ground human value in something that comes in degrees, then our human value would come in degrees. That's right. Very helpful, Clinton. Thank you. And yes, for, for, the, for you guys listening in who are not aware of this, um, Peter Singer um, does make the point in his writings that Clinton just said, which is that we should consider the moral status of higher functioning animals like dolphins and certain types of monkeys who would have higher cognitive abilities that they can immediately exercise than the fetus in the womb can. So being human is not enough to ground our rights and dignity, so then what will? <laughs> well, whatever functions or criteria the ruling class decides are necessary uh, in order to um, possess and have your right to life protected. So Clinton, let's dive into that. When it comes to these functions, these criteria, these, these sort of like cognitive or functional checkboxes that these professors say you must meet before you are a person or before you have an inalienable right to life, one of the most popular ones, Clinton, is desires or interests, right? So they say that the unborn child has no conscious desires or interests. And if you don't have any desires, namely maybe the desire to go on living, if you don't have any desires, then I haven't violated your rights by depriving you of life because you weren't even aware of the fact that you were a a distinct, unique individual. You didn't have a desire to go on living. And so if I don't violate your desires or interests, then I haven't violated your rights. That's what they say. And so they say, as long as the child can't have an immediately exercisable ability to have a desires, then it's okay to abort them. Um, what would be your response to that? How, how do we even begin thinking through that critique? Yeah, well, I mean, 
from a fundamental viewpoint, I would say that it's not our desires, but uh, something even more fundamental than that. Because the reason that we can have desires in the first place is because we have the inherent capacity for rationality. And we have that inherent capacity from fertilization. Uh, it's not the fact that we suddenly become persons when we're suddenly able to to engage in this rational thought. But this, this, uh, this kind of idea, this functionalism idea, really puts the cart before the horse. Because the reason that we can even have these uh, immediately exercisable capacities for things like, uh, you know, d desiring the right to life or holding beliefs or these kinds of things is because fundamentally we have these capacities inherently. You know, if a, um, if a hedgehog fails to grow up and uh, become rational. Well, that that's not any sort of deprivation of the hedgehog because hedgehogs mm. are not the kind of things which are rational, uh, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog notwithstanding. Uh, but <laughs> but the human being is the kind of thing that mm. uh, that has the that has that capacity for rationality and higher thinking. Right. So if a human being grows up and fails to exhibit those those properties, fails to be able to engage in higher thought, then we do consider that a tragedy because we recognize that that's a deprivation to the human being. We recognize that the human is not able to flourish as human beings ought to flourish because he is not able to engage in rational thought. And usually when someone has some sort of a deprivation, we, we don't kill that person or justify killing that person because they lack some property which he ought to be able to fulfill. We actually treat those people uh, with with greater dignity because we, mm. we recognize that these people need greater assistance because they're not able to fulfill their functions as human wow. beings. So when right. someone like so when someone like David Boonin comes along and says, well, you know, you, you're uh, you have to be able to desire something in order to have a right to it. If you don't desire something, then you're not harmed by being deprived of that thing. Well, there are a number of counterexamples that we can that we can uh, that we can present, which show that indeed you can be harmed by being deprived of something you didn't actually desire. There are a couple of uh, of grounded real world examples we can think of. Uh, for example, if a if a toddler. Has a, has a rich uncle who dies, and the rich uncle leaves this toddler, uh, you know, a, a fortune. And the executor of the toddler's estate squanders that fortune, and the toddler never finds out when he becomes old enough that he had that fortune. Well, he's still been harmed by being deprived of that fortune, even if he never comes to figure out that he actually had this fortune wow. that was supposed to come to him. Uh, you know, some uh, some pro-life philosophers have gone a little bit. Um, a little bit more of a, of a darker route and said, you know, we can imagine a, a beautiful actress like, a, you know, someone like Jennifer Aniston or uh, or Jessica Alba or someone who is in a, a major car accident, winds up unconscious in, uh, in a hospital, and the doctor who's supposed to be caring for her actually ends up sexually assaulting her and raping her while she's in the hospital. Well, she's in a coma, so she doesn't have any sorts of desires to not wow. be raped or sexually assaulted, but we would still say that it would be a harm to that person to have these these um, you know the sexual assault right. or the rape of against this person, even though they're in a coma, they're un unable to consciously desire uh, you know right. a state of affairs in which they wouldn't be taken advantage of in some way. Uh, and then right. you have you know philosophers who love to imagine uh, you know science fiction type scenarios like Frank Beckwith, who says you know we can also imagine like a mad scientist who uh, who 
you know, has an embryo in a lab uh, and is going to implant it. But then he, he tinkers with this embryo such that he, he uh, removes any sort of ability for this embryo ever to desire anything. So mm -hmm. has this embryo been harmed by having his, his ultimate capacity for desire removed before he is even able to desire anything? Or we might think of, for example, a, a, a slave who has been, who has been conditioned to desire to be a slave and not to desire his freedom. Well, we would say that this, this slave still has a, a natural right to freedom anyway, even though he doesn't desire uh, to have his freedom. So there, there are a number of counterexamples we can come up with to show that you don't actually have to desire something in order to be harmed by being deprived of it. Well, I, I think uh, this argument is uh, drowning through all the holes uh, you just put in it um, by exposing the uh, flaws in all of their reasoning. And that's it's yeah. very well and said, Clinton, because I, I think a lot of people are confused initially by these types of arguments. But I think what you just did was perfect by, by showing other counterexamples where one's inability to immediately desire something does not remove their fundamental right to life. I think most people who are even pro-choice, Clinton, would listen to your counterexamples and say, yeah, I agree with you. I still think the slave who's been conditioned to not desire his freedom has an inherent natural right to life and liberty. I think that the embryo whose uh, functions were tinkered with in utero so that they never desire anything would still be, uh, would still be uh, deprived of something they deserved if they were 16 years old outside of the womb, never desired anything because a mad scientist screwed around with them in the utero, most pro-choicers would still say, don't kill that 16-year-old who has been made to never desire anything. And so this reveals something that I think our, I want our listeners to always grasp, which is that most pro-choicers are not willing to apply their bigoted, strange ideas post-utero or to any other born person, but they are willing to accept the cognitive functions that they grant to born people and deny them to unborn people to come up with some type of way that they can justify what they already want to justify, which is abortion. So in this case, philosophy doesn't become the pursuit of truth. It becomes a way, it becomes a tool or a cudgel to use to silence pro-lifers and to justify abortion. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's kind of the double-edged sword of philosophy. Uh, you know, philosophy comes from an old Greek word uh, meaning lover of wisdom, essentially. You know, philosopher is a lover of wisdom, philosophy the love of wisdom, etc. Right. Uh, but, you know, philosophy can also be abused. If you if you have, uh, like, an underlying belief, like, I really believe that abortion is morally permissible, then you might come up with philosophical arguments to justify your position on abortion rather than saying, well, you know, should I question the assumptions that lead me to think that abortion is permissible? Uh, they, they just come up with arguments to justify it. So philosophy is kind of a double-edged sword in that respect. And so that's why it behooves pro-life people to uh, to at least understand the basics of philosophy so that you can recognize when somebody uh, makes a bad argument, how to recognize a bad argument and how to respond to that person's bad argument, how to really get at the heart of the argument and not make irrelevant arguments trying to, uh, you know, sidestep the argument or trying to under cut it in some way, right. but to actually be able to address the heart uh, of the argument. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. even the arguments I'm presenting here today, is they're not necessarily the end of the matter, because if I was standing here with David Boone and he would have 
responses to the arguments that I just gave, and then I would have res more, you know, further responses to him. So even right. even this is not, the, you know, the end of, of the discussion necessarily. Uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't know if we're necessarily wanted to go and give like a full philosophical treatise on on abortion, but I'm trying to at least get, give like the, the basic responses for most people that you'll encounter. You know, you're not encounter, yeah. you're you're not likely to encounter a disciple of David Boonin or Peter Singer on a college campus. Uh, right. You, you you might uh, I've encountered some very strange individuals, but that's because you know I, I've actually done work with Justice for All, so I've actually traveled the United States uh, doing pro life outreach on college campuses. So I have a lot of experience talking right. with with pro choice people. Uh, someone who's listening to your podcast and you know might go to school, does, you know doesn't really do the, the, the public uh, pro-life defending kind of thing, but wants to be able to have these conversations in their personal sphere of influence, are not likely to encounter disciples of these philosophers. And that and that's right. that's to our benefit, because it means that even though we should be aware of these kinds of arguments, we're not likely to need to use them very much. Usually right. the basic arguments are the ones that we need to focus on, but we should be aware of these more sophisticated arguments yeah. just in case we happen to encounter someone who yeah. you know tries Wonderful. to you know, make a boon in or, or sing a well, at, at some point, we'll uh, all have to host some type of debate between some uh, social media um, <laughs> influencer or creator who's a disciple of Boonin, and we'll put you up against him, and, and we'll do that <laughs> at some point. Um, on one more point on this desire-interest argument, uh, Clinton, some some people have actually made the point. This is very dangerous, and, and again, it goes to show the dangerous um, conclusions where these ideas lead. Many people made the point that desires presuppose a concept of oneself. So meaning they say, oh, you have to have desires, immediately exercisable desires to have a right to life. The child doesn't have immediately exercisable desires, so they don't have a right to life. Um, but, but many people have pointed out that to have desires requires a concept of oneself. But having a concept of oneself uh, requires the um, ability of language to be able to speak. And until you have language, you can't really have a concept of yourself. Until you have a concept of yourself, you can't have desires. So this might lead to a very dangerous situation where we're now saying that until you can say, I have a right to life, <laughs> you don't have a right to life. Um, what are some of the consequences of the desires argument in terms of justifying infanticide? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on on what you think uh, grounds one's uh, ability to make desires. For example, David Boonin wrote a book back in 2002 called A Defense of Abortion, in which he argued that uh, that once cortical brain activity starts going on in, in your head, that's when you start being able to form desires, even if, you, even if you're not um, necessarily consciously aware of them, you know, like, like we are talking about it. When the cortical brain activity goes on, which is somewhere around 28 to 32 weeks in utero, that's when it can be said that, that the fetus suddenly starts having desires that are worth preserving. So it really depends on, on what your idea is of you know, of desires and of what might ground us as rational as rational beings, uh, because a, a number of pro-choice arguments uh, do justify infanticide. That's why we have people like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, uh, Francesca Minerva, and uh, Jubilini, who would argue that abortion that abortion is not just permissible through all nine months of pregnancy, but also infanticide is permissible. So, you know, it, it really just depends on on the individual trying to make these arguments, because 
you know, uh, I think I've heard that most philosophers believe that infanticide is permissible. Uh, it's actually a minority of pro-choice philosophers who would disagree. And so they have wow. you know these various arguments that they make to show why abortion would be permissible up to a certain point, but infanticide would not then be permissible. So yeah, so it really wow. just depends on how you ground it. And as a, a pro-life advocate, I would say that you know, all of these functionalist arguments uh, are fundamentally mistaken because uh, because in order for there to be functions, there has to be a functioner. Uh, you know, in order for consciousness to be going on, you know, consciousness is not is not like a, a concrete thing that exists in the universe. It's an abstract property of an individual. So the individual right. has to exist before they can uh, before they can become conscious. Uh, and you know, an individual has to exist before they can become rational. So just like the human individual has to exist before he can develop his human properties, like uh, you know, arms and legs, a spinal column, uh, these kinds of things that we associate with being human, the person has to exist before they can develop these personal properties that we associate with being persons. Yeah. Things like rationality and consciousness and right. uh, higher thought and being able to communicate through language and things like this. So it, it so it's not the functions that ground our personhood, it's our underlying rational nature because all of these functions are uh, all of these functions are a result of our of our nature. The reason that I can engage in higher thought or the reason that I can speak through language is because all of these things are grounded in my nature. So mm -hmm. if uh, if I had this same nature when I was an embryo and I was just conceived uh, that I have now, and it's my nature that grounds my value as a human being, then my value was retained from when I was an embryo up until now right. and on into the future. Right. E yeah, even if you don't have the Im immediate ability to exercise those functions. Um, and, right, uh, you, you, you have know, those functions. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been said that a, uh, you know, uh, we wouldn't say a dog is less of a dog because they had something wrong such that they couldn't bark. <laughs> um, even though right. barking is, uh, is, 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 comes in virtue of being dog, it doesn't mean that you're less dog because of it. <laughs> right, exactly. The, you know, Fido is still fully a dog even if he can't bark, but we do recognize not being able to bark as a deprivation of his dogness. And because of that, right. we, would, uh, we, we wouldn't say, well, I can just kill Fido now because he can't bark. He's not able to fulfill that, that function of, of right, dogness. Right. We would actually say, well, you know, Fido can't bark, which means he's going to have a harder time letting me know when he's hungry or when he wants to go out or defending himself. So I need to pay, pay even more attention to Fido to mm -hmm. make sure that I'm meeting his needs because that's my responsibility as a dog owner. So, yeah. you know, we, we don't treat, uh, under under ordinary circumstances, we don't treat a deprivation as a reason to mistreat someone or some thing, like an animal. Right. Uh, you know, th I'm not saying animals are necessarily uh, property per se, just that they're not persons like we are. Uh, yeah. We have an obligation to, to treat our pets well because that's the obligation we take on. Uh, yeah. But... You know, we, we treat these deprivations as a reason to pay closer attention and give the animal more care, wow. uh, yeah. not less care, just because they have these deprivations. Amen. Well, well said, Clinton. Um, I want to I want to dive into sort of a, a first principle um, point here that I want to discuss and have our listeners um, be blessed by. So, so much of the arguments, and we're gonna we're gonna hit some more today, you guys. So, if you're tuning in, stay tuned. This will be very helpful for you. But so many of these more academic philosophical arguments, Clinton, come down to sort of a fundamental paradigm difference um, in in the two different worldviews. Um, held by the pro-lifer and the pro-choicer. Um, and the view that we as pro-lifers hold 
um, and as pro-life philosophers, it's called the substance view of persons. And this substance view of persons is fundamentally different from the view that the pro-choicer holds, their underlying premises, if you will. Um, for our listeners, could you explain what the substance view of persons is? What is it, and, and how does understanding the substance view of persons help us as pro-lifers respond to and navigate these pro-abortion arguments? Yeah, well, the substance view of persons is actually grounded in Aristotelian metaphysics. So, And what does that you, mean? Well, if you if you ask uh, you know uh, an atheist, they would say that you know Aristotle has been has been debunked essentially, uh, which is not true. Uh, his metaphysics are still plausible today. His his scientific model of the universe has been overturned. You know, we had Aristotelian metaphysics, then uh, Sir Isaac Newton comes along and replaces that paradigm, and then Albert Einstein comes along and replaces that paradigm. So. Uh, Aristotle's and briefly, physical, for, our, for our listeners, to, to, to talk, define metaphysics. What is metaphysics? Yeah, so, 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 uh, so just to just finish up on the, on the previous thought, uh, so uh, Aristotle's physical model of the universe has been overturned and uh, is no longer feasible, but his metaphysical view of reality is still feasible and is defended by a number of philosophers today. So uh, metaphysics, the, the prefix meta just means beyond. So metaphysics is basically just beyond physics. Uh, Aristotle, you know, back when Aristotle lived, it was feasible for uh, for a philosopher to also engage in science because, you know, science had not progressed to the point where it is today, where scientists now essentially need to be able to specialize because science right. is just so complex today that it's not really feasible for one scientist to be an expert in and and all the different fields that there are. So it's more necessary to specialize as a scientist or philosopher today. But back when Aristotle lived, it was, it was a lot more possible to do science and to do philosophy. In fact, science was actually seen as a subset of philosophy. It was, it was right. actually referred to as natural philosophy. So science was actually subservient to philosophy. You'll, you'll find a lot of people denying the, the, uh, the, the importance or the necessity of philosophy today, but, uh, but that, that's actually a, a wrong-headed way of thinking because you need, uh, you need a grounding in philosophy before you can even do science. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, so all, all metaphysics just means is beyond physics. And so hmm. Aristotle wrote his book on physics and then he wrote his book on metaphysics, which is the stuff that's beyond physics, things that right. you know you, you can't investigate through through you know through your five senses and or right. through scientific investigation. Things like, you know, what are persons, you know, what am I fundamentally, you know, all these kinds of questions are metaphysical questions. They're not questions right. that we can investigate through physical, uh, you know, investigation. Excellent. So, so what was Aristotle's um, substance view of persons? Yeah, so, so basically uh, all of these, you know, all of this is grounded in Aristotle and it was really picked up and, and uh, improved upon by St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, an ancient uh, Christian philosopher. Right. and. Yeah. Uh, a number of philosophers today have taken it and improved upon it. You know, philosophers like Ed Fazer, David Oderberg, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, I believe, was a Thomistic philosopher too, etc. And so, basically, the substance view of persons is based on uh, a lot of it is based on Aristotle's four causes, where you had the material cause, you had the uh, formal cause, the efficient cause, and the uh, Oh, is that there? I uh, see. Formal, material, efficient, and uh, final cause. 
And all of these four causes, if you look at one thing, these four causes can fully explain the thing. You have, uh, you know, you have the final cause, which is the the uh, the purpose for which this thing was constructed. So if you look at like a, a like a bronze statue, uh, the you know, its final cause we might say is for beauty or for art. That's the reason that it was constructed. Uh, you have the material cause, which is the underlying stuff it's made out of. That would be the bronze. Uh, you have the formal cause, which is essentially uh, you know the formal cause doesn't necessarily have to do you know oftentimes when we think of form we think of like how a thing looks but that's not exactly what what the formal cause means that might be part of it um, but the formal cause is really just kind of the the underlying uh, the the essence or the or the um, you know basically the essence of a thing what what makes it what it is in this case we're, we're talking about a, a statue um, and so whatever the essence of a statue is that would be what we would call the formal cause and then you have the efficient cause which is the thing that brought that into existence the efficient cause in this case would be the sculptor who made the statue itself right. so with these four causes you can fully explain uh, any given thing um, and so when we when we look at human beings if, if we're talking about uh, how we would describe this through Aristotelian metaphysics we would say that human beings are uh, an irreducible composite of form and matter we have the form which is which is our hum our underlying human nature the essence right. uh, you know of the thing and so in order to find the thing's essence you have to ask well what separates it from other things you know mm -hmm. what what's the essence of triangularity well a triangle is a, is a plane figure but what separates it from a square is that a triangle has three sides and a square has four sides. So the essence of triangularity is to be a three-sided plane figure, whereas a, the essence of a square is to be a four-sided plane figure. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of how you figure out the thing's essence. So in the cool. case of a human being, we are animals fundamentally, but what separates us from the other animals? Well, it's the fact that we're rational. It's our rational nature that separates us. So the essence of humanity is to be uh, is to be a rational animal. That's what the, the essence right. of human, humanity is. And then, Separates of course, you have from the, everything else. Yeah. Right. And then you have the material cause, which, of course, is just our, our flesh and blood and bones and everything. So we're, we're irreducible composites of form and matter. There's that immaterial part of us, which is our form, which is, you know, which which kind of grounds all of our metaphysical, uh, uh, you know, non-physical uh, capacities, and then you have the material part of us, which is you know the, the physical part, which grounds our physical capacities, like our ability to run, our right. ability to draw, to create things like that. Uh, so the substance view of persons is that human beings are substances, and what is and that's not to denigrate uh, human beings. That's not to say that right. we're just you know uh, stuff that the universe you know burped out or something. What that yeah, just yeah. means is that we're the kind of individuals that maintain our change. Our, our, we maintain our identities through change because we find uh, we, we have an underlying uh, an, an underlying uh, locus of of um, of uh, uh, well, there's like an underlying uh, thing that that grounds our identity and maintains our our identities through change. Like when we fall asleep, uh, you know, and we wake up, we're not a different person when we wake up because we have that underlying essence that grounds our identity and and make sure make sure that we're the same thing through all of these changes. We fall asleep, right. we wake up, we're the same person. If I happen to lose my arm in an industrial accident, I'm still the same person after that, uh, etc. That's opposed to an artifact like a car or like a laptop or some constructed thing. A constructed thing finds its identity in its parts. Uh, you know, right. my laptop is not a laptop un until it's constructed as a laptop and it's able to function as a laptop. You know, I can I can write in a, on a word processor. I can save my right. documents. I can 
you know, use iTunes, listen to music, that kind of thing. If it breaks down and is no longer able to function as a laptop, then it's really just a laptop in name only. It's just a very expensive, very heavy uh, paperweight. Right. But humans maintain their identities through change, which means that if we, that when we come into existence at fertilization as an embryo, all of these changes that we undergo through our lifetime, you know, we, we get bigger, we grow human parts, our legs, our arms, our spinal column, etc. Uh, we become rational. All of these things uh, are within our internal programming to undergo. And there's a biological continuity from when we're an embryo to when we're a, a, a toddler to when we're a teenager to when we're an right. adult. Etc. Etc. All of these changes are, are, you know, they're they're very big changes. You know, obviously, uh, a single cell embryo looks very different and acts very different than a full blown adult. But there's that biological continuity uh, through all of those changes. And since it's the same individual and uh, it's a it's a living thing, which makes it a substance, it maintains its identity through all of those changes. Which means I was that embryo that was uh, that was conceived in my mother's fallopian tubes uh, as I am now I'm the same individual through all of those changes and okay. so if I and so if it was if it's wrong to kill me now it was wrong to kill me at that point because I was the same individual with the same uh, with the same sorts of uh, of um, you know, the same underlying rational nature so uh, even though I was very different at the embryo stage uh, everything that that I am now was already written into the programming of that embryo. You know, the DNA or the uh, rational nature, however you want to look at it. Uh, all of that was was already written in there, which means that I'm the same individual there. I just needed time to develop and uh, and you know basically start to exhibit all of these properties and develop all of these parts. Right. Yeah, yeah. But that Brilliant. was me. So, one of the so for, for our listeners, Clinton, um, how would you explain the, this substance view of persons to an eighth grader in 30 seconds? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. so obviously that was that was a little bit of a kind of a crash course in Aristotelian philosophy. But uh, uh, yeah, if I was going to explain this to an eighth grader, I would just say that, uh, you know, I would just probably focus on the biological continuity. And of course, I wouldn't, uh, well, uh I don't know if that I don't know if those words would be familiar to an eighth grader or not, but I would just basically say that you know when when that embryo comes into existence, when when the the uh, egg is fertilized by the sperm, uh, there are there is no fundamental change from when that embryo was an embryo to when that embryo became an adult that would justify being able to kill it at its earlier stage, uh, but not kill it when it's an adult. There's no fundamental change in any of those stages that would justify being able to kill that embryo, and since there are no fundamental changes that would justify killing the embryo, uh, then uh, uh, since it's the same individual then and there were no fundamental changes that occurred, uh, I was the same individual, which means it was wrong to kill me then just like it's wrong to kill me now. Perfect. That's Brilliant, Clinton. Probably Thank you so I much would. for yeah. that crash course. And, and obviously the substance view of persons then rejects the idea of speciesism because we're saying there is something about being human. Um, that makes us more valuable than, than other forms of species. And so um, as we dive into some of these arguments here, uh, Clinton, what would you have our viewers and listeners be aware of as to how these pro-abortion philosophical arguments reject the substance view of persons? Yeah, so essentially uh, pro-choice philosophers have a different idea of the human person than we do. Um, you know, we, we, you know, especially if you're a pro-life Christian, you have this idea that that there's an underlying soul that, that you know, all living, well, human beings at least, but uh, traditionally Christians have understood all living things to have souls, including plants and, and trees and animals as well, uh, because the, the soul is just the animating factor of the body. 
but pro-choice philosophers who are usually not Christians and not religious, they have a different idea about the human person, that they have this idea that we're more like that were more like artifacts that were constructed piece by piece, as opposed to, uh, you know, developing over time, uh, like a Polaroid picture, as pro-life philosopher Richard Stith would would uh, would analogize it to. So that's so that's one of the main underlying points, and this gets into another branch of philosophy called philosophy of mind, because now you start talking because now you start talking about well, what fundamentally is a human person? Are are we just mm. you know are we just uh, things like artifacts? Uh, where you know where we do find our identity in our parts, uh, or are we you know substances where we maintain our identity through change? And a lot of that gets into philosophy of mind, and that's kind of one of the biggest uh, disagreements between pro-life and pro-choice philosophers. I, I think. Brilliant, wonderful, awesome. Thank you, Clinton. That's very helpful. So, um, so I just want our listeners to be aware of that that underlying worldview that we have when we approach this conversation, which acknowledges us as a certain type of entity, a human being, um, from the moment we're human, across time and space, across development, and that doesn't change the underlying nature of who we are. A, a human being with a with a fundamental underlying um, uh, sort of a rational nature which will develop across time even if you can't immediately exercise the ability to say two and two makes four or that I am me um, but it is in the nature of that being to realize those types of functions unlike any other form of life <clears throat> and uh, and obviously that's uh, God's idea not ours so when we dive into some of these arguments that reject the substance view of persons Clinton by viewing us merely as a constructed thing just an arrangement of parts and, and until that arrangement it meets the philosopher's uh, prearranged requirement for what is a person, then that entity doesn't have a right to life. The child doesn't have a right to life because they haven't met Peter Singer or David Boonin's perfect uh, constructed arrangement of what a person is with rights. So let's, let's start with bodily autonomy. So Clinton, people say that even if the unborn child is a person, they might grant your argument that the child's a person, but they'll say that the child doesn't have a right to use the mother's organs, to use a mother's body. So sure, Clinton, it's a human being. Hey, maybe it's even a person, doesn't matter though. No person has the right to use another person's organs or body to survive because nobody has the right to use someone's organs against their will or their consent, so the child doesn't either. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, yeah, I would say ordinarily, uh, we don't have the right to somebody else's organs, but pregnancy is not a situation in which um, in which someone is dying and needs an organ transplant. Uh, the the unborn embryo slash fetus is where it naturally is supposed to be. So in order to remove it from from the woman's uterus, you have to actually kill the fetus. So it so uh, the organ donation example is not comparable in any way to the situation of pregnancy because in pregnancy you have a perfectly healthy fetus who uses the organ, um, whereas in the case of, a, of an organ transplant, you have a person who's dying and needs uh, needs the use of somebody else's organ that, number one, is not, uh, is not in any way uh, you know, geared toward the toward keeping your body alive. It's geared toward keeping their body alive. Right. So you don't have a natural claim on it. But also, wow. uh, well said. Um, the the uh, the situation of organ donation is much different in that uh, 
when when a, a woman gets pregnant, she is his, she has already essentially granted consent to the use of the uterus. So uh, so a closer analogy would be uh, would be someone uh, getting that organ transplant and then the person who donated that organ demanding it back because uh, uh -huh. now you, you'd actually have to uh, to go back into this person wow. to get the organ back and you have to you know kill or severely maim this person to get the organ back. Right. Well, that's not that's not something that that person has a right to do. Once you consent to giving the organ, mm. uh, now that you have to actually kill or maim the person to get it back, you, you no longer have a reasonable claim uh, wow. to that organ. So in this case, when it comes to the, the case of pregnancy with a woman's uterus, uh, you know, she's already granted tacit consent to to allow the, the fetus the use of that organ. Uh, and since she has to kill the fetus in order to get the organ back, uh, she cannot then revoke that consent because now you're mm. killing a human being to you know to essentially revoke consent of that and as frank frank beckwith uh, in his book defending uh, defending life says you know uh, just because you you grant consent doesn't you know does not mean that you can that you can uh, that you always have the right to revoke consent you know and he uses the example of if you uh, if you consent to help a friend carry a, a, a couch up the stairs up to his apartment well you can't then just uh, quit halfway through and, and say well you know I consented to help but you know I, I have the right to revoke consent you know that, that doesn't work because now you're leaving now you're leaving your friend in a tough spot by quitting halfway through you can't just uh, you can't just revoke consent if you're going to leave right. someone worse off than when you started after right, right. granting consent yeah, well said, uh, Clinton. I, I liked what you said about the um, the child having a claim uh, to the uterus because that organ exists for their well-being, protection, and development. Um, it's been said that you know the uterus is the only organ in a woman's body that's not made for her, right? It's not made for her. It's made for someone else. Um, but the primary point you made was that essentially consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. Right, and so because you consented to the possibility of a new human being coming into existence, um, then you did consent to support them. And that means you don't have a right to then rescind that consent by, well, that rescind that consent is just a euphemism for killing them in the abortion debate. I no longer consent to support right. you, I kill you. But on that point, let's, let's jump to another argument that would be made by a, you know, a disciple of Boonin or, or Singer who would say, ah, Clinton, but, you know, if I open my window because I want to air out my living room and a burglar comes in, you know, I might have consented to the possibility of a burglar coming into my living room because I opened my window, but that doesn't mean I consented to be robbed. And so they'll reject your assumption or claim that you made, which is that consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. Let me just read you actually how one pro-abortion philosopher makes this argument, and I want to hear your response because our listeners get this one a lot, right? Consent to sex yeah. is not consent to pregnancy. That's what they say. So this person says, if the room is stuffy and I therefore open a window to air it and a burglar climbs in, it would be absurd to say, ah, now he can stay. She's given him a right to the use of her house for she is partially responsible for his presence there, having voluntarily done what enabled him to get in, in full knowledge that there are such things as burglars and burglars burgle. It would still be more absurd to say this if I had had bars installed outside my windows precisely to prevent burglars from getting in, and a burglar got in only because of a defect in the bars, okay? The analogy being I was on contraception just because there was a defect in the contraception and it failed, I still was, just because I consented to the possibility of pregnancy, I didn't consent 
to pregnancy, just like I consented to the possibility of being robbed, but it's not my fault that there was a defect in my bars, and so I didn't consent to have a burglar in my home and rob me. So sorry, Clinton, consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy, therefore, I don't have to consent to using my body to support another individual who is there because I had sex. So how do we think through that and respond to that? Yeah, this is a, another argument that Frank Beckwith uh, responds to in his book, Defending Life. This actually comes from uh, the portion you were reading was from Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous essay, A Defense of Abortion. Uh, so essentially, the response to this kind of to this kind of analogy is that uh, windows are not, uh, you know, windows. That the purpose of windows, the final cause we might say, is to you know to allow a breeze on a hot day, or you know, so, or you know, some some purpose that we might have for installing a window. But no one installs a window for the purpose of a burglar coming through it to burgle their house. So <laughs> when we say so. So the, this analogy doesn't work because sex is intrinsically linked to pregnancy. Now, of course, when you make this kind of argument, a pro-choice person will say, well, sex doesn't always result in pregnancy. So you can't say that sex is intrinsically linked to pregnancy, but that's irrelevant. Uh, because it doesn't matter how many times it succeeds. The fact of the matter is, if you if a man and woman have sex uh, and the woman winds up pregnant, it was a direct result of the sex. It doesn't right. matter if there are certain times when it might fail, because there are a number of things that have to go right in order for for pregnancy to uh, to happen. I mean, you know, right. some couples, you, you know, some fertile couples can spend you know a year or more uh, trying to conceive before it finally happens. So, you know, th the fact that it doesn't always succeed is not an argument against that it's intrinsically linked to pregnancy. It's just that right. when pregnancy happens, it was a direct result of the sex. Right. So when you when you start trying to throw contraception into it, contraception does not change the nature of sex. Sex is still uh, procreative. Right. What you're actually doing is you're just adding a barrier to procreation. So right. since you're adding a barrier to it and not changing the, the nature of the act itself, you're still morally responsible for the pregnancy in case it happens. Right. Because as you know, uh, contraception fails. So if you're using a contraception, which has a chance of failing, you, you use that contraception uh, and have sex in the full knowledge that that contraception may fail. So you're still morally responsible for the pregnancy that results and you still have a moral obligation to care for any child that results from that act of having sex. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, well said. One, one point that I think is kind of hilarious to make, Clinton, is that not all, but many pro-abortion advocates, um, they hate self-defense, right? They hate guns. And most, most pro-choicers are radical leftists. They also hate guns. And most of those same individuals who advocate for abortion, Clinton, they advocate against homeowners having the right to murder burglars in their home, right? They say things like, just knock them over the head with a, with a stick. You know, you don't have the right to kill them. It's like, but so, and I'm, it doesn't apply to everyone. But for many people, it does. And I find that pretty hilarious because if they're going to say that the burglar entering your home through a defect in your bars is the moral equivalent to uh, sex, even though you didn't consent to pregnancy, and they're using that as the argument to justify killing the unborn, then I guess you're also using that as an argument to justify murdering the burglar. <laughs> but most of them well. say, well, no, no, no. So I, I, find, that, I find that quite funny. Um, moving on to another argument here, Clinton, that um, I think we should, we should address while we have the time. Um, and this is sort of a, a very strange view of, of biology. So we're moving a little bit more to biology rather than ethics, so we'll, we'll call it bioethics. Um, and this is this argument from the acorn analogy, right? And, and uh, lots of people have heard this 
this one, but um, I've, I haven't heard pro-lifers have as good of a response to it as you have before. So what they say is they say an acorn is not an oak tree because an acorn is so substantially different from the oak tree. And they would say, Clinton, nobody would say that an acorn is an oak tree. And their point, of course, is to say, so why would you say a zygote is a person or a zygote is the moral equivalent of a person because the zygote or fetus is so substantially different from a newborn or toddler, so the fetus is not a person. Um, what, what's wrong with that thought experiment or analogy they make? Yeah, this is this is one that I hear com, uh, you know commonly. In fact, you can find uh, memes being shared around Facebook that you know, uh, like like there's a worm. This is not silk. Uh, you know, there there's a caterpillar. This is not a butterfly. Then there's a fetus. This is not a person. <laughs> this is not that difficult. Right. Uh, but but apparently it is that difficult because they still <laughs> share this this dumb meme uh, without really understanding what they're even saying. And th this is actually something that also comes from Judith Jarvis Thompson's essay. She uses the acorn analogy, which struck me as odd because I would hope that a philosopher Philosopher would know better than this because it's a really bad argument. But this mm. is, uh, but this is one of the one of the strengths of reading and studying Thomistic philosophers like Ed Fazer and uh, David Oderberg and Frank Beckwith himself. Uh, I believe Christopher Kayser too. Uh, they they come at this from from Thomistic, um, you know, in Aristotelian metaphysics. Because uh, if you if you start to understand the substance view of persons, you start to recognize how dumb these arguments are, and you recognize that the pro life view. Uh, based on Thomistic metaphysics, actually has really good responses to these kinds of arguments. Mm. Um, and in fact, science has long been based in Aristotelian metaphysics, as has medicine. You know, it's, right. it's only been fairly recently that they've kind of switched to a more utilitarian view of medicine, where it used to be, you know, you would not, uh, for example, lop off a perfectly healthy limb uh, because that because you know, you, you would be essentially damaging that person's body. It, it would be, it would have been unconscionable for a doctor to lop off a perfectly healthy limb. But now you have doctors that are willing to perform, you know, uh, gender reassignment surgeries and, and, you know, remove a perfectly healthy penis in order to try and make the, the you know, man who identifies as a woman uh, try to make his body resemble that right. of a woman. That would have been unconscionable, you know, 150 years ago in medicine. But now they have a more utilitarian view where, you know, whatever makes the patient happy is what is what I will go with now. Right. Uh, and so even science and medicine used to be heavily based in Aristotelian understanding. And now that they've rejected this, uh, that's actually been a huge detriment to scientific uh, and medical advancement uh, because now, now they, they don't have, you know, really, uh, they don't have a really good foundation to do science or, or, uh, or uh, medicine at all. And it's really become a detriment, but that's kind of a, a different discussion altogether. But anyway, uh, Regarding the substance view of persons, we can see that uh, biologically an acorn is the same individual organism as the oak tree that it will grow into. Uh, mm. Yeah, it looks a lot different, just like the embryo looks a lot different than the human being does, but it's still the same organism. It's still going to grow up into that oak tree. So it's still the same fundamental organism, just like the embryo is the same fundamental organism as the adult that it grows into as well. So since there's that biological continuity from the embryo stage to the adult stage, it's the same individual through all of these points. Because again, humans are substances, we retain our identity through change. All of these changes are within our internal programming to undergo, and something right. does not die or become something other than it used to be just because it undergoes a change that's within its internal programming to undergo. Right. So this idea that an acorn is not an oak tree is just false. An acorn is uh, 
is an oak tree at the fundamental biological level. It's the same organism, uh, even though we call you know the, we call it an acorn and then we call it an oak tree, but it's the same fundamental organism through uh, exactly. through all of its changes. You know when it grows into a sapling and then when it grows into you know a mature majestic oak as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah, this analogy just doesn't work at all. Awesome, wonderful. Let's finish with the famous violinist, uh, Clinton, as I think would be appropriate to do. Um, it, when it does come to the more academic philosophical arguments for abortion, this one probably will be more popular just because it, beca it became so popular. I had it thrown at me all the time on college campuses, um, and some yeah. of our listeners will probably be aware of it too, but it comes from Judith Jarvis Thompson in her essay. Um, essentially, for our listeners, I'll, I'll set it up, and then I'll, I'll throw the ball into your court, and it goes something like this. One day, you, you wake up, and you find yourself in a hospital connected to this person, and you're like, what the heck is happening? Um, and they come up to you, and the hospital staff says, listen, um, we're so sorry this happened. Apparently, last night, the Society for Music Lovers um, kidnapped you because their favorite famous violinist um, had kidneys that were failing, and they scanned our medical database, and they found that just your kidneys matched his such that you could keep him alive. So they knocked you unconscious last night while you were sleeping. They dragged you to the hospital. They plugged you into the famous violinist. Um, we, wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have allowed this to happen had we known that this was going to happen, but now that you're plugged into the famous violinist, to disconnect you would be to kill him. But don't worry. Don't worry. It's just for nine months. Um, after which we can unplug you and you will both be able to live and survive and go on to live uh, fruitful lives. And so Judith Jarvis Thompson sets up this thought experiment and then she says, would it be morally incumbent upon you to remain plugged into the violinist? She's assuming that the pro-lifer will say no as many do. Some bite the bullet and they say, no, you have to remain plugged into him. But most will say, no, I could unplug myself. At which point she would go, aha, I got you. That's just like abortion. Abortion's just like unplugging yourself from the fetus, and it's not morally incumbent upon you to re remain plugged in, quote unquote, to the fetus for all nine months. So she paints up this thought experiment to say that it's the moral equivalent of abortion. Um, and because most pro-lifers at a gut level say, no, I, I, do, I'm not, I wouldn't be required to remain plugged into this famous violinist, she thinks that that somehow defeats the pro-life argument. So could you, could you rapid fire and go through what are the flaws with this argument and how does that situation n not parallel the relationship between the mother and her unborn child? Sure. Uh, there are actually a lot of uh, good responses um, I, I've seen levied, levied against this uh, violinist thought experiment. I'll just go ahead and go through three to kind of to kind of keep it brief. But um, and they're they're kind of in varying uh, varying degrees of of um, uh, of strength against the, the violinist because right. you know when someone presents an analogy, uh, you know no analogy is perfect. And so you can always come up with some uh, with some difference between the analogy and what is trying to analogize and try to claim victory and say, see, this is nothing alike. But uh, I see that go on a lot. But the, the problem is, you, you know, you can't just find any disanalogy and say that the analogy doesn't work. You have to actually... Um, you have to actually look at the point of the analogy, what is trying to analogize, and say, okay, does this actually does this actually do the work it's trying to do? Is this actually an, an analogy for pregnancy? And uh, does this analogy work to show that the you know that uh, that a woman doesn't is not um, any, in any sense uh, 
re required to remain plugged into the to the fetus. And it's, it's also worth pointing out here that she says, you know, you may or may not have a moral obligation to remain plugged into the violinist. What she's simply arguing here is that there's is that there is no legal obligation to remain plugged in. So even if you have a moral right. obligation, uh, you know, the, the law cannot force you to remain plugged in. And right. so there are, I think, three, uh, there are at least three disanalogies here which show why this analogy doesn't work. Uh, number one is the is the relationship between the two. In this case, we have uh, the violinist and a complete stranger, you. Right. You really don't have any, uh, you know, you may or may not have obligations to a complete stranger. Now, you know, my, my gut instinct is, you know, I, I think I would probably be morally required to remain plugged in um, because it, it would be a, it would be a minimum, I think probably a minimal burden to me to remain plugged into the violinist because, you know, I don't have a job I have to go to. The, the jobs I do are all flexible. I can do it right from the hospital. Uh, for me, I think it would be a fairly minimal burden to remain plugged in uh, to that violinist and keep him alive. Um, right. But, you know, we're not talking uh, moral obligation. We're talking legal obligation here. Right. So in this case, we're talking about a violinist who and a complete stranger, whereas in the case of pregnancy, we're talking about a mother and her own child. And certainly right. a, a parent has obligations to her own child that you do not have to complete stranger. In fact, if you read Thompson's essay, uh, her analogy actually depends on the idea that a parent does not have any sort of natural obligations to her offspring. The only right. the only reason you have obligations to your offspring is because you choose to take the child home with you. Then right. that's when your parental obligations begin. Of course, the pro-life view is, well, no, parental obligations begin when the woman finds out she's pregnant because, you know, a woman who is pregnant, you know, is a mom. She has the child growing within her that she has to take care of. It requires right. some, uh, some lifestyle changes. You know, you can't just eat whatever you want. You can't smoke or drink while you're pregnant. It requires lifestyle style changes that she has to undergo in order to keep her child healthy. So the, right. the mother-child relationship begins when she, you know, it begins at fertilization, but it really begins right. when she dis discovers that she's pregnant because right. now she has that little child growing within her that she has to keep alive. So, uh, so I think Thompson is just wrong when she says that your right. parental obligations don't begin until you actually consent to take the child home from right. the hospital. I think that's a really yeah. bad way of looking at, at parenthood. Right. Yeah, and, I that, mean, and that's, that's brilliant. I mean, I, I think that would be the most self-evident one anyone would acknowledge, right? It says parents have natural biological obligations and responsibilities to their own children in a way that I don't have towards another stranger, which is the situation of me plugged into a famous violinist that I don't know. Um, what else is wrong with this right. argument? Yeah, and, and so just just to just just to harken back to the parental obligation real quick, uh, it, it's not uh, it's not a bulletproof objection. I think the objection works, but you know the pro-choice person could then say, well, okay, so it's not a, an unconscious violinist. Now it's your own child. Uh, do you have a legal obligation to remain plugged in? And then they could, of course. Paint, uh, like David Boonin does. Uh, in fact, he wrote a book uh, just a couple of years ago called Beyond Row, where he looked at a, a court case called McFall v. Shimp, in which McFall and Shimp were cousins. McFall was was dying of, of cancer and needed a bone marrow transplant. His cousin Shimp uh, had had the bone marrow he needed, and so he, uh, but Shemp refused to 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 give him his bone marrow. So he took Shemp to court. Uh, the judge essentially says, you know, what you're doing is barbaric, but I cannot, in good conscience, force you to donate your bone marrow. And so they would say that uh, that 
you know, there's no legal obligation for a parent to remain plugged into her child. I think it can be argued that such uh, that such an obligation should exist in the case of pregnancy. But, you know, that that's a discussion you'd have to have with the pro-choice person, which is why I say I think this objection works, but it's not one of the stronger objections to the uh, violinist scenario. Uh, the two stronger objections is, number one, what we call the responsibility objection. And that's the fact that uh, when you uh, when you look at the case of the violinist uh, and yourself, you are not responsible for the kidney ailment that the violinist finds himself in. But the woman, by having sex, uh, you know, having sex with a man, is responsible for the event that got her pregnant. Since she is responsible for the creation of that child and for placing that child in a state of dependence upon her, she has an obligation then to care for that child. Right. So I think that's one of the strongest objections to it. But, you know, uh, anyone who has uh, looked at the abortion issue for five seconds can can find something that's wrong with the responsibility objection. Of course, that's, you know, what about rape? Because uh, the right. responsibility objection doesn't work in the case of rape. So yeah. I, I think the responsibility objection shows that, uh, you know, the vast majority of abortions are impermissible. But, of course, there's still a very small percentage of abortions that happen in the case of rape. And right. so when we talk about rape abortions, of course, it's a very sensitive subject. It's something that should never happen to a woman. Uh, and in fact, even even uh, abortion practitioners like Warren Hearn have said, you know, uh, we, we should give her an abortion if she wants it, but the abortion is not going to help her through the rape. She needs to be re uh, referred for proper counseling to right. help her through the rape. Uh, you know, right. the, the abortion is just going to uh, cause another act of violence compounded right. on top of the original rape. And in fact, yeah. it can even be worse for the woman because now it's an act of violence that she actually consented to. She right. has consented to having her own child killed. So it can actually be worse than the rape in some case, in, you know, to right. some yeah. women. Exactly. So the responsibility so, objection works. So e the each response you've had is, is made a stronger and stronger case against the famous violinist analogy. But I know you're about to knock it out of the park and grand slam it with this one. So what's the final and most deadly flaw of this alleged magic bullet argument for abortion? Yeah, so... So the responsibility objection works in the vast majority, but it doesn't work in the case of rape. Uh, the the one objection that I think works in every case is that when we uh, when when we look at the case of the violinist and yourself who's been plugged into it, if you unplug yourself from the violinist, you are not the active agent in that violinist's death. The violinist is uh, dying because of the kidney ailment. So you are just returning the violinist back to his state of dying from the kidney ailment. You are not responsible for that violinist's death, especially because you were forced into the situation against your will. Uh, by unplugging right. him, you're in no way responsible for that violinist's death. But in the case of abortion, you are responsible for the fetus's death because every abortion results in the active death of the fetus. So even in the case of rape, you're having to kill the fetus in order to remove that human being from the woman's right. body. And so as Frank Beck would say in his book, Defending Life, uh, when we talk about the difficult uh, situation of, of rape, um, it's, it's a basic point of ethics that you cannot kill person A to benefit person B. Uh, that's not a lack of compassion for person B, it's just an unwillingness to commit murder. So right. in the case of abortion, you you must always actively kill a human being. You must yeah. actively wow. take that human being's life, right. which is which is impermissible. But right. in the case of the violinist, you are not killing the violinist, you are returning that violinist back to his, his original state before you were plugged into him. Uh, and wow. so it's the kidney ailment that's responsible for his death, not you. And I think that's the, wow. the argument. The, the, 
I think that's the ma- that's one of the major you know that right. and the responsibility objection together uh, make up the major uh, disanalogy between the violinist situation and the situation of pregnancy. Right, brilliant, Clinton. So yeah, in the case of abortion, it's killing. In the case of the famous violinist, it's letting die. So killing versus much, letting yeah. die, you're not actively killing the famous violinist because he had an underlying pathology that would have led to his natural death anyways had you not had your right. natural rights taken from you, knocked out unconscious and being plugged into him. So to, right. to, be, to be accurate in Judith Jarvis uh, Thompson's attempt to call abortion letting die, we could say, well, I'm just in space with my buddy and we both have spacesuits, um, and, and, and then I pulled his oxygen tube out. Um, but Clinton, I didn't kill him, I just let him die. Uh, and we'd say, uh, no, <laughs> no, you killed him. Uh, and and right. that's, the, that's the flaw she makes in abortion is that you are, you are removing the child from the womb or tearing them into pieces. That is killing, that's not letting die. Um, right, and that's and that's yeah. not to say that it and that's not to say that it's always permissible to let someone die. Uh, if if someone uh, if someone is is dying and you're in a position to help that person, then depending on the situation, you might have an obligation to uh, to save that person, especially depending on how how much of a burden it would be to you. Uh, you know, uh, for example, if a if a woman is is uh, is stuck with with her with a baby, you know, in a, in a snowstorm or something, you know, uh, if there's no formula, uh, she, she might have an obligation to breastfeed, but if, if she's not producing breast milk, she certainly doesn't have an obligation to like chop off a piece of her finger and feed that to the, the kid, you know, or something like that. So, so, you know, it's not, you know, there, there are certain obligations we have and, and sometimes burdens can actually, can actually, uh, give us an idea of, of whether or not something is permissible. So right. I'm not saying it's always permissible to let somebody die. I think that if you're in a position to help somebody, uh, then, you know, especially if it's a minimal burden to you, then right. you should not let that person die. But in this case, if you do unplug from the violinist, uh, that, you know, so, so, you know, so the discussion of whether or not it's, it's permissible to unplug from the violinist is a, is sort of a different discussion from, uh, you know, it is this a situation that's analogous to the case of pregnancy. And so right. I would say, you know, like I said, I, I think, you know, my gut reaction would be, I think I actually probably would have a moral obligation right. to remain plugged into the violinist because I wouldn't want to let that violinist die by unplugging. But right. the question here is, is this analogous to the case of pregnancy? And right. I would say, no, it's not, because in this case, it's the kidney ailment that kills the violinist. But you right. uh, and, you know, and the doctor are the active agents in that fetus's right. death. Yeah. So in the case of the famous violinist, the question is, is it permissible to let this person die? In the case of abortion, the question is, is it permissible to actively kill this person? Um, So thank you, Clinton, so much. Um, As we wrap up, um, if you had two books um, that you would recommend for listeners to start entry level um, uh, books to learn about pro-life philosophy and the best books on defending the substance view of persons and responding to pro-abortion philosophical arguments. What would be two books you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, uh, two books for beginners. Uh, I would say uh, The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf is a great entry-level book. Uh, and then Persuasive Pro-Life by Trent Horn is also a great entry-level book because uh, whereas Scott's a book is more geared toward the arguments and showing you how to respond to pro-choice people's arguments, uh, Trent's book is more geared toward interacting with people and how to have conversations with people 
ordinarily and with people who are difficult. And then, uh, and then I have two books that I'd like to recommend uh, for people who aren't necessarily beginners but want to go into uh, more more information on the substance view. Uh, Defending Life by Frank Beckwith was the book that that uh, really introduced me to the substance view. But then I would also recommend uh, The Last Superstition by Ed Fazer, which is really more a book that's geared toward uh, interacting with with atheists, especially the new atheists, and he gets quite polemical at times. So, you know, forget him for that. He's a very polemical writer, but he has a great chapter on Aristotelian metaphysics and how it pertains to the pro-life view. And so that that's Wonderful. that was a really great um, kind of an introductory book for the substance view itself. And then if you really want to go into like deeper waters regarding uh, regarding Aristotelianism, right. uh, you can graduate then to Scholastic Metaphysics by Ed Fazer. Wonderful. Awesome, Clinton. Well, thank you so much for your, your expertise and brilliance in, in diving deep oh. into these arguments and helping our listeners debunk them. Uh, guys, if you want to oh. connect with uh, Clinton, you can follow him on Facebook. You can also follow his podcast, Pro-Life Thinking, and he also blogs and writes at ProLifeTraining.com if you want to dive into more of what Clinton provides for the pro-life movement and for pro-life advocates to be equipped to defend life. Thanks for joining us today, Clinton. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, having me on to talk about this important issue. Yeah, we'll do it again. Uh, if you guys want to learn more, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. We really appreciate it. If you want to engage with me online, head on over to SethGruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to get my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local, or to request me for an event as my fall schedule is filling up quickly. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, social media. We want to reach young people where they're at with good ideas while we're still allowed to exist on these platforms. So help us out. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.